Well, let me say to you all that it's a joy to be with you. And this morning, I'm getting the opportunity and privilege to talk about and to preach to you something that I'm very passionate about. Brian and I talked this past week and how he talked about Judas's betrayal and the difficulty that is. And now we open up 13 in verse 31. My sermon title, which Ryan asked me for, is basically, can the, uh, the commandment to love one another really get us there? Can a commandment literally allow us to experience what Jesus is commanding us to do? All right, so if you will allow me to read when he had gone out, that was Judas. Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I've said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. Jesus answered, will you lay your life down for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. It's an interesting statement that we see Jesus making, having just been betrayed. How many of us would be able to have the grace and the ability to step into the next moment, having been betrayed by someone that you have shared life with for three and a half years and poured yourself into? And Jesus steps out of that and says, the time has come for me to be glorified. How do you think Jesus was able to see that and respond to that. I would suggest to you this morning that it's because he saw things as his father saw them. He saw the plan of God, he saw the will of God, and he stepped into it in that moment. That all along Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. That's an interesting statement because, again, it was a part of the plan of God that he be betrayed and that Jesus had to be betrayed in order to fulfill the ultimate plan of God. And it's only seeing as God would see that we, any of us would have a modicum of hope to be able to step into a moment like that and to respond as Jesus would have responded. And so the beauty of what we are talking about this morning is, is that I'm going to factor this section of Scripture into three different parts. One is the, the redemption and justification and salvation that Christ wins for us. And in this moment, Jesus says to Peter and says to the group that he's going where they could not follow. But he tells Peter he will follow afterwards. What was Jesus talking about there? Jesus was about to step into the plan of redemption, to give up his life. Not because primarily we had to be saved. I would suggest to you, as you will discover in John 17, where Jesus is in the garden and he says what? Father, I would that this cup be removed from me. What's the rest of the statement? But not my will, but thine be done. The reason why Jesus went to the cross was because of his love for his father, 
and his obedience to his father and the will of his father. We see it in that very passage declared. It wasn't, Jesus said, I'd rather not die, but I'm willing to walk in obedience to your will, Father. So Jesus died on the cross primarily because of his love for the Father, love for God himself, and hearing the Father's will and knowing the Father's will, Jesus steps into it. And so the ultimate resultant aspect of that is, is that Jesus dies, conquers sin, death, and hell, is resurrected, and he's telling these folks that they will follow after him. But he has to go first. And he has gone first, not only for them, but as we heard this morning, for all of those who are believers in Christ. Now, Peter's an interesting paradigm here because he's, Jesus tells them they, can, he, they can't follow, but then at, at the end of the passage, Peter comes back, and Peter, as P typical Peter, I love Peter. Peter gives me great hope because I'm a lot like him. You know, he, his faux pas are throughout the word of God, which is very, very interesting. But here he says to the Lord, I will follow. I'll lay my life down for you. How many of us have had that kind of bravado? We've been moved by something. We're willing to step into it and say, yeah, I'll do that. But when the moment of truth comes, what happened to Peter? Jesus prophesies it here. He, said, he tells him, he said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And we see Peter's denial. We see his shame but fast-forwarding again to the same author in John 21, Jesus does something that's very interesting. After the resurrection and after Jesus has breathed the Holy Spirit upon the disciples, Jesus literally says to Peter, Peter, lovest thou me? And if you remember Peter's history and his denial and his betrayal of Jesus... And Peter's response was, Jesus asked him that question, and one would think that, no, Peter didn't really love him because he didn't stand up and literally be willing to die with him. But the interesting thing is, is that Peter's response is, Lord, thou knowest. What did Jesus knowest? You notice that my scripture memory a lot of times comes from the King James. But the knowest, Lord, thou knowest. But the fact is, what did Jesus know? Jesus knew the sin and the failure and the shame of Peter. And what does Jesus do in response to that and say, Peter, feed my sheep? Because Peter had experienced the shame, the hopelessness of anything outside the ability of the Spirit of God in him to live. And he also knew that he had been forgiven because we have seen Jesus spend time with the disciples after his resurrection. So when Jesus is asking this question, he tells Peter to go out and feed his sheep, to testify to the fact that I'm a sinner and I'm a wretch and I'm fallen and I'm guilty and I'm shamed and all of those things are true in my life and yet I have experienced the glorious forgiveness, redemption, and salvation of Jesus Christ. And every one of us sitting in this room who know Christ personally have the same ability, the same call, and really have the same opportunity to share about the fact that we have the best news in the world. 
I mean, if the gospel really is true, it's amazing how the world, even the culture, the context that you live in, are searching for answers, how to get rid of the shame, how to find out who I am, how to achieve, how to succeed, how to find love. And I would suggest to you that we all fall short and are guilty of what the old country song said, that we've looked for love. You want to finish it? In all the wrong places. Yeah, you got it. So again, Peter is responding in John 21 now to Jesus' redemptive forgiveness and love. And Jesus not only asking that question once, how many times does he ask it? Anybody know? Three times. Isn't it interesting? Peter denied three times. And Jesus has him affirm three times. And truly, I think it's one of the most meaningful aspects of Jesus' engagement with Peter post-resurrection. Because it allows us to see the beauty of what Christ has done for us. Because we all identify with Peter. So again, this is the redemptive work that Christ has done. Then Jesus says back at the beginning of the scripture, the time is coming, I am glorified, and the Father of the Father is glorified in me. What does it mean to be glorified? To be glorified means to truly to bring amplification, to truly show glory, right? Glory, right? We're to bring God what? Glory, right? How do we bring God glory? Is it something we go out and gather, take a glory offering and bring it in and offer it to him? I mean, how do we functionally bring God glory? Well, I would contend to you today that in the scripture, and what we're going to find out about this new commandment, love, is truly that the Spirit of God lives in you. How many believe that? Amen. When we came to a living revelation and realization of a relationship to God Almighty, His Spirit is in us. Jesus promised in Matthew 28, I will never, what, leave you nor forsake you. The way that Jesus fulfills that promise in us if he had stayed here literally physiologically, he could have never done that because he could never be with all of us all at the same time. So truly, he said, it would be better that I go to the Father and I will send the Spirit and the Spirit of God will truly fill you and live in you. Just think about that. Second Corinthians 5 talks about we are ambassadors of Christ. 1 John 3.8, again, the author of this scripture says, if the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you, he will do what? He will make you alive. He will quicken your mortal body. The fact is, is that we are the temple. Paul says in Romans, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And how many times in your life, in my life, have we thought God sits up there and I'm here and I'm to figure out what I'm supposed to do because I read the Bible and if I'm a good boy... God will be happy with me. Just think about how we have all been trained to be performers of the word of God. How many of you want to be loved for what you do and how well you do it? Interesting. No takers. But we've all done it. We've all been guilty of it. We've all tried to earn. We have lived for people's expectations. We have lived for the approval, the applause, and the acceptance of man. And I would suggest to you that we have taken that as the cheap substitute for the love of the living God. 
When people are happy with me, I'm happy. And the thing is, I try to make people happy by what I do for them, living up to their expectations. Footnote, hospice nurse spent life with patients the last 12 weeks of their lives. And she gathered and heard a lot of people talk about what their greatest regrets were. And the number one regret of a dying person, as she summarized all this, was, I wish I had lived the life that I had truly had in me instead of the life that everyone else expected of me. Henry David Thoreau said, most men lead quiet lives of desperation and go to the grave with the song still in their heart. Isn't that interesting? God has put a song in each of our hearts. God has put a deposit of the Imago Dei, his image uniquely in every one of us. And we get to express who God is. The Spirit of God lives in me. And hopefully today, I'm walking in relationship with God, in love with God, hearing God and obeying God. Otherwise, we're all wasting our time right now. But the beauty of it is that the Spirit of God lives in me. And truly, if I am walking in communion with God, in the love of God, and in the will of God, I will reveal uniquely through Jeff Dunbar who God is. My worldview has changed in the past 12 years, and it's come in my marriage to Sandy, to raising my children, my grandchildren, and also in literally shepherding and sharing life with men of the next generation. God has spoken to me in and through them. We have wrestled with issues. We sit and listen for God together, and then we encourage each other to be obedient to God. But the fact is, where, the, where God is, his glory would be. Would you not think that? I mean, if God physically appeared to us right now, you think his glory would be 10 minutes behind him? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. I think his, the Shekinah glory of God is attendant to him at all times. And so the uniqueness that comes through you and the Spirit of God, ultimately, we have the capacity to reveal who God is. Now, if you're looking for a proof text, Jesus taught us to pray it. He said, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How does that get done? How does the will of God get done here on earth, if not through you and me? How does the kingdom come where really the king is honored and the, and the presence of the king is revealed uniquely and partially through all of us? And together, we more greatly reveal who Jesus is together than we would apart and individually. So again, glorification, we have the capacity to reveal who God is every moment of every day. That's an absolute statement, but it's also a true statement. And I know there are people who will say, but I'm a sinner, but I can't do that. Okay, that's, that's a given, we understand that. But the fact is, if you don't truly start to see that that's the end goal, even in heaven, I mean, when you step into heaven, do you think you'll not reveal and, 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 and literally worship God and, and share communion with him for the rest of eternity? I would think so. So if that truly is the goal of God in eternity, then wouldn't the journey toward that eternity with him invite us into being able to walk more closely and reveal more and more of him? 
Jesus said, he who is forgiven much, what? Loves much. And I will suggest to you the reason why that happens is because when we are forgiven, our relationship is made one with God and the, the unrighteousness of our sin is cleansed from us because of the redemptive work of Christ. So our communion comes back into wholeness with him. So again, we have that capacity. Jesus has gone before us, as we saw in the earlier mention of the text. Now we see that Jesus went first, and Jesus revealed perfectly who God is here on earth. Would you agree? And I can also guarantee you that Jesus didn't have one moment where he was out of the will of God. I mean, he didn't get an afternoon to go off water skiing on the Sea of Galilee because he had a tough time that morning. So God gave him an afternoon off. The, the statement for that is, I mean, that statement is ridiculous, but the fact is, is that if God was interested in every moment of Jesus' life, how many moments of your life is he interested in? All of them. How many of you think the majority of your life is spent in mundane things? I would contend to you, whatever the will of God is for you in any given moment is the greatest and most wonderful thing that you can engage in doing. A couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to change my granddaughter's poop diaper. I trust I haven't offended you in that, but all of you probably done that in one time or another, or had yours changed, one of the two, and thanks be to God there were folks to do that. But the point is, is that she came to me and she said, Papa, I poo-pooed. And, I mean, she had. And so, I, me being the good grandfather, I looked for her mother first. But the fact is, is that uh, I ended up putting up on the couch on a towel. And she was a mess from stem to stern. And as I started to step into that, I thought, oh, God. And the Lord checked my heart in that moment and said, you're doing for her what she cannot do for herself. And so I cleaned her up. We had fun. We got, I put her, I said, you're going to be in a dry diaper. You're going to be able to get down, go play, have fun. And so when she did, she was at peace. I was at peace. I tied the diaper up in a, in, a, in a bag, took it to the trash can, and I can take you to the very spot in Sarah's house where God spoke to me, and he said, you're the same way. When you sin, you come to me and say, Papa, I have poo-pooed. And you can't clean yourself up. One of the most dynamic revelations out of the, one of the most mundane, ugliest events. And God said, I do for you every day what you've done for her in the physical. You come and you can't get rid of the guilt. You can't get rid of the stench of your shame and your guilt. And I clean you up. And in that moment, I thought, God, there's nothing mundane in you, nothing that you can't speak through. And the beauty of that is, is that God invites us to see that we need him, but we not only need him, but that he is constantly pursuing us. Do you believe God is interested in your life? Yeah. Do you believe God loves you? Every one of you will theologically tell me that right? God loves me. We grew up singing Jesus loves me. But for the majority of my life, I didn't believe it. In a living reality in me, 
because I got on the performance train. I was on the treadmill of performance trying to, uh, to be approved by people and live to their expectations. And I swung to the other way and said, I don't want to care about anybody. I told God 20 years ago, I said, I want to take this burden that you give me to care for people, and I want to heave it off of a cliff. I want to stop caring. And God truly stopped me in my tracks and spoke to my heart and said, your problem, son, is, is that you're not asking me about anything. You think you know. You think you know my word. You think you know what to do. You think you know what I want you to do. And God said, you don't. And in that moment, I realized in the scripture that's in James 1 says, if any man desires wisdom, let him do what? Ask of God. And God had just convicted me that I've asked him about nothing. How many of you think that you know what people want to, you to do? <laughs> especially those of you who are married, and if you've been married for any length of time, the fact is you can presume upon it. Well, you should know what I want. Well, I have learned, continue to learn, I'm learning, after 44 years of marriage, unless I ask my wife what she wants, I do not really know. My wife is sitting here saying, amen. But the other side of the battle is, is also trying to get my wife to see that basically unless she asks me, she doesn't really know what I want either, what's going on in my heart. And we have discovered how many times we have presumed to know what's going on in each other's hearts and not had a clue. And in stepping into that thinking we knew, we created offense to one another. Anybody ever do that? If you never believed and needed the hope of the redemption of Christ, you'll need it in marriage, believe me. And in any human relationship. But the beauty of that is, is that we are learning the beauty. Jesus now steps in and says, this is a new commandment that I give to you. Interesting, in John 2, he says, it's not really a new commandment, but it is a new commandment. There's a paradox there. How many of you know that paradox is difficult to live in? Two things being true at the same time. But it's true of every one of you sitting in this room that know Jesus, because the fact is you are totally depraved in your sin, fully worthy of hell, and in Christ you're fully redeemed, and all that lives inside of us at the same time. Now, if you can theologically and intellectually explain that to me, I'll follow you anywhere. But the fact is, God truly loves us even in the midst of our sin. And think about your salvation. If indeed God didn't love you and God didn't want you to be a part of the kingdom, then why would God talk to you about anything? Seriously. I contend those two, those two reasons alone, God's love for me and God's desire and creation of me for communion and fellowship with him forever are the only two reasons I have a conversation with God about anything. That thought literally started to create a tremendous stir in my life about 10, 12 years ago. And I continue to wrestle with it. I continue to learn and allow God to transform me by the renewing of my mind, as Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. It says, don't be conformed to the world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is a new mindset. It's a new way of looking because we're starting to look at life through God's eyes, not through our own. How many of you believe that you can see things the way God sees them? 
I'm the only one in the room. But I would say to you that it's true. The Word of God says it's not the things that are seen that are real, right? It's the things that are what? Unseen. Well, if the things that are unseen are real, do you think God wants us to deal with reality? Yeah, he does. He does want. And for the past three or four years, my prayer every day has started this way. Father, give me your eyes that I may see you, see myself, see others, and see life circumstances as you see them. It's the only hope I've got of getting or seeing or doing anything right. And I believe God is answering that prayer. To be able to see the truth in a situation without having to have it written on a wall. To be able to hear the heart of God and his love for me. That's a part of being able to see and experience the way God wants us to experience it. Again, the idea of being able to hear the word of God. How many of you believe the word of God lives and it can be active inside of you? It can come pardon me, alive inside of you. Paul tells Timothy, what? The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So I think all of you have had the word of God come alive in you at some point in time. How many times have you read a scripture over and over again, and then one day you're reading it, and boom, it's alive, and it means something, and it's real, and it's applicable to right where you are. So every one of you has had the experience with God. That's a part of hearing the word come alive in us. And I would suggest to you, when it comes alive in you, just so it's on the day of your salvation, God takes that word which produces hope, and the Spirit of God gives us the gift of faith to believe it. And I believe what James talks about, the work of faith, truly is obedience to that which God wants us to follow in faith for that which he's given us faith for. So we can move and do the will of God. How many of you believe that? I hope a lot. Because you would be problematic in praying the Lord's Prayer to say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and you don't have a part in that. Now, why would God do all this? Why does God want this done? Does he just want you to be a little trick pony that goes out and he can show off who he is every once in a while through you? Or does God truly interested in be, and is able to live in the moment, any given moment, I want to come back to my poop diaper example. This morning I'm having the privilege to preach the word of God to you. In that moment, I was involved in what I considered a very mundane thing. Which of those two events was the greater? Neither. Because if I was obedient in the love of God to the will of God in that moment back then, and I'm being obedient to the will of God in this moment now, what's the difference? And you see, I believe the metric of God is obedience. It's the one command given to children, and for my children on up, it has never ceased. To obey God is a commandment that we will follow for the rest of our lives. So it's not the magnitude of what you do that creates bringing God glory. It's the fact that you're obedient to God in the moment that glorifies God in that moment. Because it reveals him. 
I get the idea that changing Kaylin's poop diaper and preaching to you all this morning have two different outcomes and two different contexts. But I juxtapose the two because they are obviously ridiculously different. But yet again, fulfilling the will of God in each moment is important. And the reason why that's important, my friends, is because if they're not, and you are performing for the greater deeds, and I'm viewing preaching to you as more important than that, then my life will be lived in big manic swings where I'll be constantly looking for opportunities to preach and being fulfilled in that, and the rest of it's all the trash I have to go through to get back to the mountaintop of preaching. And I've lived like that in my life when I pastored. And God has simply gently said, "Mm -mm, come walk with me, son. Come let me open your heart and your mind to see as I see and to walk as I walk and to live as I lived with an energy and a passion and compassion that will enable you to live out what I have called you to live and scripted for you in your life. And why is this important? Because again, if we're going to fulfill the prayer of his kingdom coming and his will being done, we have the opportunity to do that. So I want for all of us to see that God is doing this literally to invite us to walk in communion with him because he loves us and he created us for that. The resultant issue is that the world might see something. But if you take what the scriptures say this morning that says, by this they will all know that you are mine. And you take that and try to perform that and you look at it as a behavioral, psychological thing. And I told Sandy this as I was preparing this message. I could stand here for the rest of my life and tell you not enough to do to show the world that God is love. If it is the doing that does that, instead of the doing being the resultant issue. Take this thought. God loves me. I'm responding to God in love to him. Jesus said, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors you love yourself. So I don't love God because of what he's done for me. Otherwise, I would be guilty of what I said earlier. Do you want to be loved for what you do and how well you do it? And I fell into that trap in my Christian life a lot because when God was good to me, I loved him. And when he wasn't, I let him know that. And God and I have had many talks and I've never won. So I can tell you I've got lots of empirical evidence that neither will you. So the, the joy of it is, though, that God is saying, and he will wrestle with us. He's long-suffering and gentle. So he brings us to a place where he loves us, and our response to him is because he loves us. First John 4 says that. We love him because he first loved us. And see, it's God's love that's the causative force for everything here on earth. John says it in John 4, 7. God is love. Paul writes it in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, where he says, Now abide faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. We have hope in the word of God and in Christ. But it says love is the greatest because love is the person of God. God is love. So again, 
God loves me, and my response to that is not my obligatory response because I'm told I have to. My joy is to volitionally want to love him because he is. And trust me, that is a wonderful freedom that continues to grow in my life. And I think God wants it to be growing in yours, and I think it is growing. You may not see it, but it is growing because God is who he is. He's the author and finisher of your faith. So again, God is love. God truly wants me to walk in obedience to him. And watch this. If my heart is loving God and I'm obedient to God, guess who's responsible for his will being done? He is. If I do the will of God, it's his will, so the responsibility is his. Hence the truth of Jesus saying his yoke is easy and his burdens light. I don't have to sweat the outcome. How many times in life have I done things? I, if you all don't like what I share this morning, I would be saddened by that. But the fact is, I'm, I trust in God. I'm not living for applause and approval. What I'm living for is to hear the well done of my Father God. And I believe that he will speak that to me or he will correct me. Amen? Spirit of God brings conviction of sin. How many of you enjoy being convicted of your sin? That's a fun event, isn't it? You're wrong, right? And we have an amazing ability to bring conviction by accusation instead of helping people discover that they're walking away from God. Why does God convict us of sin? He wants us to repent confess and be forgiven and cleansed from unrighteousness. How do we know that? I just gave you about three scriptures in that statement. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from the unrighteousness that I've sinned is caused. Why would God want to do that? Because God wants me to walk in reconciliation and communion with him, to love him and literally, he and I being one. John, again, the same author in chapter 17 says, Father, that they may be one as you and I are one. God wants us to walk in communion with him day by day in obedience to his will and go on the adventure of seeing his kingdom come and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven in and through each of us. I mean, for the first time in my life, I'll be 70 in November. And I've been a Christian for 44 going on 45 years. And it's only been in the past 10 or 12 that God has been moving me into a place of recognizing that I am loved simply for being me. And that when I step out of his will, he will not come up and say, Jeff, get in shape here. Get your stuff together. You're making me look bad out there in the world. How's the world going to know me unless you're really doing what you're supposed to do? But I guarantee you, every one of you has had authority in your life who's come after you when, you, when you've been disobedient and treated you that way. And that's a misrepresentation of who God is, and it's a misrepresentation of his love for us. God doesn't come after us in judgment. I mean, if he really did, and he gave me what I deserved, I'd be in hell. I wouldn't be here preaching this message. It's interesting, at 65, I was having a devotion with the Lord one day, and he said, in your 65 years, you have sinned against me billions of times. 
and I've never once given you what you deserve. And I sat there and I cried to realize the magnitude of God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's love, God's long-suffering, God's compassion for me. And so it starts to come alive inside of us that it's real, that God does love me for who I am because he created me for him and for communion with him. And he's done the same for each of us who know him. And so this new commandment to love as he loved is not something that we're going to live out by our behavior. It's not going to be something that we live out by what we do and that we're going to demonstrate to the world how great God is. How many times do we think we have to go out and prove to the world that God is God by us doing nice deeds? I mean, I guarantee you, I could be down feeding the homeless in downtown Atlanta today, but I'd be out of the will of God, even though I'd be doing something that was a merciful deed. Because I wouldn't be where God wanted me to be. So again, it's not in the doing, it's literally in the being one with God and then ultimately doing the will of God that expresses the beauty of who God is. And so when we start to experience the Lord in our lives, people will start to see and notice. I've had some interesting experiences that I've shared life with men of the next generation, one of whom is a pastor at Renovation Church. And Ethan and I were sitting one day in Starbucks and he had just finished a survey of the Old Testament and 600 page book textbook sitting on the table and we're all excited about it and talking about it and this young woman comes up to us and said uh, may I interrupt you we said sure she said I couldn't help but overhear your conversation gentlemen she said and it's obvious to me that you love the Lord she said may I pray for you <laughs> I mean, I, those things just don't happen but it was interesting and in that moment she took Ethan's hand my hand and she prayed a beautiful prayer for us and then she joined her boyfriend, got a cup of coffee, and went out and sat and had a cup of coffee. Now, what caused that? Is it because we went to Starbucks and tried to make a name for Jesus because we were talking about Old Testament survey? No. It was because of the way God was living and loving in and through us with each other. She was drawn to that, and she came and she affirmed that, and she wanted to encourage us in it. And I've had experience after experience after experience in that. So again, our life simply is to do this, to give ourselves loving to loving God as Jesus did, to hearing God as Jesus did, and to obeying God as Jesus did. Fundamentally, that's what Jesus came to do, to reveal who God is, who is love. He came to do the will of God in the love of God. So again, we have the challenges, we've talked about sin, we've talked about the opportunity that we have in the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And when we confess our sins, I want to encourage us to pray for faith to believe it. How many of you believe that even if you've asked God for forgiveness, you still make yourself pay a price? You t still try to do something to prove to somebody that you're sorry for what you did or you're trying to make up for it or atone for it. And I, I'm learning to pray, God, let me believe that the work of Jesus Christ was enough for not only my sin, but the sins of those that have been perpetrated against me. And so we come to a place of saying, God, would you forgive us? 
And I'm learning to ask God for faith to believe that Jesus' work was really enough. And what I'm finding as a resultant issue to that is, is there's a, eventually an ensuing joy to know that it's done, it's finished. And I don't have to work, I don't have to earn it. I get to experience it and I get to see it even if the people that I've offended and asked for forgiveness don't forgive me, I've done all that God would want me to do. And I can trust that person into God's hands to bring them to a place of healing and hopefully forgiveness one day. But my forgiveness is not predicated upon another human being. My forgiveness is fully predicated on the love and the redemptive work of Christ for me. And when we rest in that being enough, folks, we will be good to go. We have a marvelous opportunity to allow the world to see who Jesus is, not by what we do, but by who we are. Being loved for who we are, accepted for who we are, and truly loved by God, fulfilling his will in us. We will truly watch and see God do what only God can be and do in and through each of us in our lives. So may we live in the love of God, able to hear God, in obedience to God, and may we all grow together in experiencing his kingdom coming, his will being done, his love living in me, and truly his love and life being lived in and through me and in and through you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the joy of being yours. Father, I thank you for the joy and privilege it's been to speak your word. Father, I pray that your word would now truly be seed to all of our hearts, Father God, and that it would be fertile soil. And Lord, just as Paul talked about watering and planting, Father God, but you bring forth the harvest. We have sown, we have watered, and now we ask, Father God, that you would bring forth the harvest in each of our lives that would allow each of our lives to be a living letter for the world to see and read and feel and touch, Lord God, to know that you, Lord Jesus, are who you say you are, and you are a living reality in us. In Jesus' name, amen.